Hello, this is Chad Davies, the navigator of the Scientific Odyssey podcast. The Scientific Odyssey is a mini-part journey through the history and philosophy of science, where we explore the process of scientific inquiry by looking at how humanity arrived at its understanding of the cosmos. Whether it's in the understanding, the development of the idea of matter being made of atoms moving in the void, an idea first put forward by the Greek philosophers Leucippus and Democritus, or trying to understand our place in the universe, a topic about which the great Athenian thinkers Plato and Aristotle had much to say, the voyage of the Odyssey and her crew examines how progress was made and ideas were developed in the ongoing quest to arrive at a working description of physical reality. As lovers of the historical legacy, philosophical musings, and literary flights of the Hellenes and the worldview they have bequeathed us, I know that you will want to join in our exploration through the vast expanses of space and time. You can sign on for the epic adventure by subscribing to the Scientific Odyssey on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, TuneIn FM, or wherever fine podcasts are found. You can also find us at thescientificodyssey.typepad.com or by searching for our Facebook page, The Scientific Odyssey. Thanks to Ryan for giving me the opportunity to tell you about our show, and until we see you out on the wine-dark seas, full sails on your journey. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 60, The Underworld. The History of Ancient Greece podcast is relying on advertising as a way to keep this show free. If you could do me a favor and go to the following URL, podcastlistener.com backslash antiquity, and answer a few short questions, it would be really helpful for the show. Again, that's podcastlistener.com backslash antiquity. Thanks, and now let's start today's episode. It is extremely difficult, not with just the ancient Greeks, but with any group of people, to determine with any level of accuracy the kind of life that they might have expected to encounter in the afterlife, because beliefs about the hereafter constitute a highly private and personal area of human reflection. They also tend to be self-contradictory, even where a strongly centralized religious authority, like the Roman Catholic Church, for example, provides certain guidelines. In ancient Greece, where no centralized religious authority existed, even within the same community, differences in belief are likely to have been extreme. It has been claimed, and with good reason, that no two Greeks shared exactly the same idea about the afterlife. If we knew more about Greek eschatology, the picture would no doubt be even more baffling than it is now. Almost all of our information derives from highly crafted literary descriptions, supplemented by inscriptions found on tombs. These descriptions may or may not have been representative of popular opinion, though they were almost certainly influential in giving it a basic outline. This is particularly true in the case of Homer, who in addition to crafting for the Greeks their image of the gods, may have crafted their prevailing image of Hades as well. After Homer, no detailed description of Hades has survived before the one provided by Aristophanes in his play The Frogs. 
What modifications were undertaken in popular opinion in the intervening 300 or so years is virtually impossible to determine. The term Hades is both the name of the god who rules in the underworld and the name of the place itself. The name Hades likely comes from a root that means unseen, from the primitive prefix alpha or a and the verb idane, or to see, as well as by his epithet Adonius. It refers to the fact that Hades is a dark, mysterious god whom people do not usually see. For this reason, he was thought to possess a hood of invisibility, given to him by the Cyclops that other gods and heroes borrow from time to time, during their adventures. It was made of dog skin, and it not only hid him from the mortals, but also from the other gods. The cloak and the unseen nature of the god in the place, coupled with the idea that he devours souls, made his name, Hades, a holy and awesome name. The average person was afraid to even utter it, as it evoked images of confusion, sadness, and isolation. From the 5th century BC onwards, particularly in the works of the Athenian playwrights and of the philosopher Plato, they preferred to call him by another name, that being Pluton, which means wealth, referring to the wealth that lies buried in the earth, such as gold, silver, bronze, marble, and so forth. He was also worshipped as Pluton at Eleusis. The Latinized Pluto is sometimes used in Roman literature, which has led many to assert, misleadingly, that Pluto was the Roman counterpart of Hades. In fact, his Roman equivalent is Dispater, whose name is most often taken to mean rich father, and is perhaps a direct translation of Pluton. Pluto was also identified with the obscure Roman Orcus, which, like Hades, was the name of both the god of the underworld and the underworld as a place. So it seems that the Roman Pluto became a mixture of the Greek god Hades and the Eleusinian icon Pluton. Anyways, from Pluton's domain comes the minerals that men mine and the cash crops that feed the farmers' families. The Greeks believed that the planting of seeds in the earth has an affinity with the practice of burial, and it was the business of Pluton and his wife Persephone to nurture the seeds so that the process of birth, maturity, and death remain reliable. Many images on vases show him holding a cornucopia full of the bounty of the earth that he is ready to pour out for human benefit. And so, in a positive way, Pluton was seen as a provider. By this name, a lot of people honored him, and he had numerous sanctuaries in the Greek cities as the god of fruitfulness and wealth. The name Pluton especially was used with the Eleusinian Mysteries, more on that in a future episode, where he was venerated as the loving husband of Persephone, who became his part-time bride. She spent some of her time with her mother Demeter, making the crops grow, and the rest of her time with her husband in the underworld ruling over the souls of the departed and nurturing the buried seeds. By contrast, with the name Hades, he was a fearsome and hateful god, and so he had few temples and religious practices associated with him, and he is portrayed as the dark and violent abductor of Persephone, an event which we will cover in detail next episode. Hades was the son of Kronos and Rhea, and the brother of Zeus, Hera, Poseidon, Demeter, and Hestia. After the fall of Kronos, his three sons shared the authority of the world by drawing lots. Zeus was allotted the sky, Poseidon was given the sea, and Hades was crowned the kingdom of the dead, located in the underworld, with the province of the earth available to all three simultaneously. Although Hades shared the dominion of the earth with his two brothers, he is rarely seen outside his domain, as his primary attention was given to what happened in the underworld and ensuring that none of his subjects ever left. And so, to those on the earth, he remained a mystery, and thus they were so afraid of him. However, in terms of character, Hades is depicted as being dignified and just, not devil-like or as some evil torturer of souls. In fact, he is more passive rather than evil, as his role was more in maintaining balance than as a disciplinarian. That being said, though, he was also depicted as being cold and stern, due to the realm he oversaw. Any other individual aspects of his personality are not discussed, simply because the Greeks refrained from giving the god of the dead much thought in order to avoid attracting his attention. As a result, he was depicted so infrequently in art and literature. When he does appear, though, he usually has a dark beard and is either seated upon an ebony throne or being drawn in his chariot by four black horses, a fearsome and impressive sight. He also often held a scepter and a pair of keys, both of which represented his control over the underworld, while the latter acted as a reminder that the gates of the underworld were always locked so that the souls could never leave. 
Even if the doors were ever to be opened, he has a backup plan in place, and he is often shown with this three-headed watchdog named Cerberus, whose bark ensured that none could ever escape. The normally level-headed Hades, though, could grow quite angry when anyone tried to leave, or if someone tried to steal the souls from his realm. His wrath was equally terrible for anyone who tried to cheat death or otherwise crossed him, as both Sisyphus and Parathus found out. Another myth involves Asclepius, who was originally a demigod, fathered by Apollo. During his lifetime, he became a famous and talented physician, who eventually became so powerful that he was able to bring the dead back to life. Of course, this would not sit well with Hades, as he felt cheated out of the souls that should be his. So he persuaded Zeus to kill Asclepius with a thunderbolt. After his death, though, he was brought to Olympus, where he became a god. We will cover the story of Asclepius in more detail in a future episode. Hades' relationship with the death of mortals gave him a lot of epithets, which showed that the god of the dead was considered a fearsome figure to those still living. He was even called Hesperos Theos, or the god of darkness. Since the mortals were in no hurry to meet him, they were hesitant to swear oaths in his name, and since sacrifices and prayers did not appease him, mortals rarely tried. But when they did, it was because they needed to win the favor of Hades' ghosts through necromancy, in the hope of gaining otherwise hidden information, or because they wanted revenge on an enemy or something terrible to come to them. They sent their curses or oaths down to Hades in the hopes that he or his minions would see to their fulfillment. When the ancients did worship Hades, they did so with rites that were often the opposite of those offered to other divinities. They banged their fists on the earth to make sure that he could hear them. They then poured out blood, wine, or olive oil into the ground or into a pit instead of onto an altar. The victims sacrificed were black, typically sheep, or in many cases pigs, and the person making the sacrifice had to avert his eyes by turning away his face when he performed the act. In many regions in Greece, it was believed that there existed various gods of the underworld, all of which were merciless, such as Zagreus, or the Great Hunter, and Melanippus, or the Black Rider, who pursues people on horseback. Some people called Hades by other names, such as Admetus, or Merciless, and Nellius, or the Unconquerable. He was even known as Zeus Chthonius, or Zeus of the Lower World, by those who wished to avoid using his actual name as he had complete control over the underworld, like Zeus had complete control over the heavens. Because the death of every mortal is inevitable, many people used euphemistic names for him, such as Clymenus, or Notorious, and Eubolius, or Good Counsel. He was also called Polydegmon, which means All Receiver, because as the god of the realm below, he received all souls of the dead. The philosopher Heraclitus, who was a fan of unifying opposites, as we discussed in episode 20, declared that Hades, the god of death, and Dionysus, the very essence of the indestructible life force, were actually two personalities of the same god. Some modern scholars have suggested that Hades may in fact have been a cover name for the underworld Dionysus. They suggest that this dual identity may have been familiar to those who came into contact with the Eleusinian, Dionysian, or Orphic mysteries. One of the epithets of Dionysus, after all, was Chthonius, meaning the subterranean, and he was celebrated in this role as an underworld deity in the Anthesteria. Some believe that this sort of unification of Hades, Zeus, and Dionysus as a single tripartite god was done in order to represent the birth, death, and resurrection of a deity and to unify the shining realm of Zeus and the dark underworld realm of Hades. Regardless, we will cover the Eleusinian and Orphic mysteries in more detail in future episodes. According to tradition, the underworld itself could be reached by both land and sea. Homer places it at the outer bounds of Oceanus, the river that was believed to encircle the inhabited earth. He also describes it as being beneath the depths of the earth. In other words, it could be reached by sailing to the far west, because that's where the sun sets, symbolizing death, or by entering certain caves whose depths descended into the realm of the dead. The Greek concept of the afterlife is not at all comparable with the modern Judeo-Christian version of hell. The ancient poets had a saying that the descent to the underworld is easy, but the way back up is difficult. That's because Hades is a realm made solely for the dead. In fact, in Greco-Roman myth, only deities or heroes who have some measure of divine blood in their veins have ever entered the underworld and returned, such as Dionysus, Orpheus, Heracles, Theseus, Odysseus, and then later Aeneas. The terms katabasis, literally to go down, and anabasis, or to go up, 
are used often symbolically to represent the trip to and the return from the underworld. The hero or upperworld deity journeys to the underworld and returns, often having completed a quest intended to retrieve an object or a loved one, or with having achieved heightened knowledge in some capacity. The ability to enter the realm of the dead while still alive and to return is a proof of the hero's exceptional status as being more than mortal, and a deity like Dionysus, who enters into and returns from the underworld, demonstrates eschatological themes such as the cyclical nature of time and existence, or the defeat of death and the possibility of immortality. Visitors to the underworld, both the living and the dead, after passing through Oceanus, the White Rock, the gates of the sun god Helios, and the realm of dreams, would then reach the fields of Asphodel, sometimes also called the Asphodel Meadows. It received its name because of the type of wildflower that grows there. In fact, Asphodelus is the Greek word for flower. Also, it seems that Asphodel flowers growing in the underworld is an idea that may predate the Homeric poems, possibly reflecting the influence of Minoan and Egyptian cultures, whose afterlife was generally bright and fertile. Since the flower was highly regarded throughout the ancient world, it thus appears to have preserved its traditional positive role in the Greek afterlife. However, Homer's meadows are not a place of beauty and bliss, but is portrayed as the dark counterpart to the brightness of Mount Olympus. In the older Greek myths, particularly that of Homer's Odyssey, the realm of Hades is a dark, empty, and gloomy abode, and Hesiod describes it similarly. Regardless, upon reaching the Asphodel Meadows, visitors are now officially in the realm of Hades, where, quote, the spirits of the dead dwell, being the phantoms of men who are worn out, end quote, as Homer puts it. And it is here, too, that Homer's description of the realm of Hades peters out. We learn nothing about its appearance, its size, its notable landmarks, or its divisions. All that we know is that it was dark and windy. Perhaps Homer's imagination failed him, or perhaps he thought it ill-omened to say more. It's possible, too, that the featurelessness of Hades and Homer may have had something to do with its impenetrable darkness and the mysteriousness that surrounded it. The word Hades, as we mentioned, denotes both the god of the underworld and the underworld itself, and means literally that which is unseen. Not the least unwelcoming aspect of the kingdom is its essential unknowability. At the same time, it may strike us as something of a paradox that the Greeks had such elaborate rituals for dealing with death and burial when their ideas about the afterlife were apparently so indistinct and colorless. Their pictorial imagination also seems to have stopped dead at the entrance to Hades, as vase paintings rarely provide more than a glimpse of what lies beyond. Everything, though, that Homer tells us about the dead suggests that their condition was dreadful. The quality of life in Hades is summed up well by Achilles' observation, found in Book 11 of the Odyssey, when Odysseus visits the realm of Hades. He says that life down below is so miserable that he would rather work as a day laborer or a slave for a man who had little property, instead of being the lord of all of the spirits of the dead. Although the souls of the dead still existed, they are insubstantial beings, and as Homer puts it, they flitted around the underworld with no sense of purpose at all. He describes them as weak and bereft of their physical powers, as their souls had been worn out by their earthly existence. And so, since they lacked minos, or strength, they don't have the capacity to influence those on earth. They also lack phrenes, or wit, and thus they are oblivious to what goes on around them and on the earth above them. Since their lives in the underworld were very neutral, all social statuses and political positions were naturally eliminated, and no one was able to use their previous lives to their advantage. Therefore, they were figuratively and literally shadows of their former selves. Worse than that, though, they were condemned to experience for all eternity the mental anguish which they were subjected to when they were alive. For example, the shade of Agamemnon, the leader of the Greek forces at Troy, could do nothing but lament over the untrustworthiness of women, a subject particularly dear to him since he was murdered by his cheating wife Clytemnestra on his return from the war. Similarly, the Greek hero Ajax was unable to forget the animosity that he felt towards Odysseus, who was judged more worthy than himself in the contest for Achilles' armor, the reason of which he ultimately committed suicide. Although we cannot know whether the Greeks would have drawn any edifying moral from these memorable images of unresolved mental torment, they serve as a chilling reminder of the upending pain that awaits those in Hades who have left unfinished business up on earth. Equally pathetic was the preoccupation of the Homeric dead with the life that they have left behind. 
These shadows longed for blood, light, and a body, and so they were connected to their corporal remains. In fact, when summoned, the dead would come back to speak to the living, at their gravesite, eager and indeed greedy for news of their relatives. Lacking frenes, though, they have nothing to report in return. Regardless, this belief led the Greeks and the Romans to build a secure shelter for these spirits at their gravesite. Images or statues of the dead person were also placed on or near the grave. In this way, the shadows could revisit the remains comfortably. While in the underworld, the dead passed the time through simple pastimes, such as playing games, as shown from objects found in tombs, such as dice and game boards. Grave gifts such as clothing, jewelry, and food were left by the living for use in the underworld as well, since many believe that these gifts carried over into the realm of the dead. Overall, the Greek dead were considered to be irritable and unpleasant, but not dangerous or malevolent. The Greeks believed that the souls of the dead only grew angry if they felt a hostile presence near their graves, and so libations were given in order to appease them. Many things that were done in the ancient world had the purpose of warding off angry spirits. The Anthesteria was a festival, which occurred once a year, in which people held open their doors and set both a table for the family to eat from and a table for the spirits as well. Anyone who did not leave their door open and did not give food was the target of angry spirits. This is similar to All Souls Day, or the modern Halloween. The dead were also celebrated at the Ganesia and Nemesia. The Ganesia was in origin a private ritual celebrated on the birthday of the deceased, though under Solon it became a national festival. The Nemesia, derived from nemesis, meaning vengeance, took place at night and was intended to placate those who had come to a violent end. There was not a general consensus, though, by the ancient authors as to whether the dead were able to consume food or not. Homer depicted the dead as unable to eat or drink unless they had been summoned. However, some reliefs portray the underworld as having many elaborate feasts, and the Greeks also left cakes and other sorts of offerings at their gravesites as libations. Eulogies were also said about the dead to praise their deeds, and thus make their spirits happy. People who died were given the same amount of material goods and rights as they had when they were alive. This is shown through the story in which a recently dead Achilles was given his own share of the goods won from the Trojans. He happened to have drawn the woman Polyxena, and thus she was killed so that Achilles could have her in the underworld. This is also why many graves were tied up, or why there were often pins through a deceased body. For example, Oedipus's family pinned his ankles before they left him on the mountain to die of exposure, so that his spirit would not wander and haunt them in revenge after he died. Whenever ghosts heard or saw fun or happy things taking place in the living world, they would come up and disrupt it. These spirits can be driven away by noise, though, as they themselves are frightened by it, which is why there's usually so many exuberant noises at celebrations, such as feasts and weddings. All in all, it's as if the Homeric dead were caught in a time warp, unable to move beyond the recollection of their last moments on Earth. They also remained in the same physical condition as they were at the precise moment of their death. In the Odyssey, we hear that the shades include, quote, marriageable virgins, much-enduring old men, and many who had been wounded with bronze spears and war-killed men holding their bloodied armor, end quote. Similarly, in Sophocles' Oedipus Tyrannos, Oedipus informs the citizens of Thebes that the reason why he blinded himself after discovering that he had killed his father and married his mother was so that he would not have to endure their gaze down in Hades. Without his eyes, he wouldn't be able to see their disgust. Furthermore, Hades itself was free from the concept of time. The dead are aware of both the past and the future, though, just not the present, and in poems describing Greek heroes, the dead sometimes help to move the plot of the story along by prophesying and telling truths unknown to heroes who call upon them. But the only way for humans to communicate with the dead was to suspend time in their normal life in order to reach Hades, the place beyond immediate perception and human time. Although there is a council of elders that answer questions in most Greek myths, when they cannot answer something, though, people often refer to the dead. This is called nekia, and it is a rite in which ghosts were called up and questioned about the future. It would later become known as necromantea, or necromancy, as a compound of necros, or dead body, and mantea, or divination by means of. A nekia is not necessarily the same as a katabasis, though. A number of sites in Greece and Italy were dedicated wholly or in part to this practice. The underworld communicated with the earth by these direct channels. 
These were caverns whose depths were not fully explored. The most notable was the Necromantion, which literally means the Oracle of the Dead. It was a temple devoted to Hades and Persephone, near the northwestern ancient Greek city of Ephyra in Epirus. The site was at the meeting point of three rivers, the Acheron, the Periphlegathon, and the Cocytus, which were all believed to flow through the kingdom of Hades. It was here that Theseus, Heracles, and Odysseus all came for their katabasis to the underworld. Ritual use of the Necromantion involved elaborate ceremonies, where celebrants seeking to speak to the dead would start by gathering in the temple and consuming a meal of broad beans, pork, barley bread, oysters, and a narcotic compound. Following a cleansing ceremony and the sacrifice of a black sheep, the faithful would descend through a series of meandering underground corridors, leaving offerings as they passed through a number of iron gates. The Necromantia who was basically the priest of Hades, would pose a series of questions and chant prayers, and the celebrants would then witness the priest arise from the floor and begin to fly about the temple through the use of theatrical cranes. Although the Necromantion of Ephyra was the most prestigious, there were a few other oracles of the dead. They were supposedly found at Heraclea Pontica, on the southern Black Sea coastline, in the Argolid, at Teneron, which was situated at the southern end of the Mani Peninsula, being the middle of the three promontories that jut out of the Peloponnese, and at Avernus, a lake within a volcanic crater near Cumae in central Italy. Such specialized locations, however, were not the only places necromancy was performed. One could also perform the rite at a tomb, for example. Among the gods associated with the Necia rite are Hades, his wife Persephone, Hermes, in his capacity as Psychopompus, or the Guide of Souls, which we will discuss shortly, and finally Hecate, the goddess of magic, sorcery, and witchcraft. We will talk about her in more detail in a future episode. Anyways, the earliest reference to this cult practice comes from Homer in Book 11 of the Odyssey. The story of Odysseus' journey to Hades was followed by further accounts of such journeys undertaken by other heroes, although it is clear that, for example, the Catabasis of Heracles, in its traditional form, must have differed noticeably from the Nekia. Also, the Athenian playwright Aeschylus features the use of tombside Nekia in his plays, The Persians and Libation Bearers. The oldest literary account, as we mentioned, is found in Homer's Odyssey. In Book 11, the hero Odysseus follows the advice of Circe, a powerful sorceress in her own right, to make a katabasis to the underworld in order to consult the seer Tiresias and gain insight into his impending voyage home. He was to do this by raising the spirits of the dead through the use of spells, which Circe had taught him. She tells him that he must sail across Oceanus until he comes to the wild coast and groves of Persephone, where the tall poplars grow and willows that quickly shed their seeds. After beaching his ship, he is to seek the rock where the rivers Periphlegathon, meaning blazing like fire, and Cocytus, meaning wailing, flow into a river called Acheron, possibly meaning sorrow. Perhaps Odysseus is instructed to take this water route because he is a seasoned seafarer, or perhaps it is simply less unpleasant than the land route. Regardless, he takes her advice and sails to the very edge of the earth, beyond the place where dawn rises and that foggy place the sun never shines. There he sees a grove of trees, the junction of the two rivers, and finally the fields of Asphodel. This landscape perhaps predates the Odyssey and would have identified to the listeners that this is the gateway to the underworld. When Odysseus enters the fields of Asphodel, he finds that the dead approach him in swarms, but they cannot speak to him, and in fact they barely even exist. To be able to communicate with anyone or show any sign of life, someone must give them blood to drink. This passage from the Odyssey contains many descriptive references to necromantic rituals. Rites must be performed in a pit with fire during nocturnal hours, and Odysseus has to follow a specific recipe, which includes the blood of sacrificial animals, in order to concoct a libation for the ghosts to drink while he recites prayers to both the ghosts and the gods of the underworld. Practices such as these were commonly associated with necromancy. It was prevalent throughout ancient Egypt, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Etruria, and Rome. Rituals could be quite elaborate, involving magic circles, wands, talismans, and incantations. The necromancer might also surround his or herself with morbid aspects of death, 
which often included wearing the deceased clothing and consuming foods that symbolized lifelessness and decay, such as unleavened black bread and unfermented grape juice. Some necromancers even went so far as to take part in the mutilation and consumption of corpses. These ceremonies could carry on for hours, days or even weeks, leading up to the eventual summoning of spirits. Frequently, they were performed in places of burials or other melancholy venues that suited specific guidelines of the necromancer. Additionally, necromancers preferred to summon the recently departed based on the premise that their revelations were spoken more clearly. This time frame was usually limited to the 12 months following the death of the physical body. Once this period elapsed, necromancers would evoke the deceased's ghostly spirit instead. While some cultures considered the knowledge of the dead to be unlimited, ancient Greeks and Romans believed that individual shades knew only certain things. The apparent value of their counsel may have been based on things they knew in life or knowledge they acquired after death. For example, Ovid writes in his Metamorphosis of a marketplace in the underworld where the dead convene to exchange news and gossip. And now, let us take a short break for a word from our sponsors. The History of Ancient Greece is powered by the CLNS Media Network, and today's episode is brought to you by Great Courses Plus. One of my greatest joys is learning about different people, places, and time periods. That's why I started this podcast and why I'm a big fan of the Great Courses Plus. With this video and audio streaming service, I have unlimited access to learn from award-winning professors and experts about anything that interests me. There's over 8,500 different lectures across so many different subjects, including history, science, language, and even hobbies like cooking and photography. You can watch the videos on a TV, laptop, tablet, or smartphone, or stream the audio with the Great Courses Plus app so that you can listen along as you go about your day. In the spirit of today's episode, I've been enjoying the Great Courses Plus lecture called Being a Dead Greek, featured in the course called The Other Side of History, Daily Life in the Ancient World. While today we are taking a tour of the underworld through the perspective of a soul, Dr. Robert Garland's lecture also talks a lot about what happened to the physical body and the burial process. You don't want to miss it, and I want you to experience the Great Courses Plus too. So they're giving my listeners an entire month of unlimited access to enjoy all of their lectures for free. But you need to sign up through my special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Greece. Start your free month now. You will love it. Sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Greece. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Greece. And now, let us turn our attention back to the ancient Greeks. Returning to Odysseus, he made a libation to the dead and killed a black ram and a black ewe, spilling their blood into a pit. Countless souls gathered to drink from the blood, but Odysseus kept them back as he waited for the old seer Tiresias to appear. When he finally appeared, he drank from the libation blood and prophesied what Odysseus had to expect on his nostos, or the last leg of his journey home, and how he could protect himself until he arrived in Ithaca. He also revealed that Poseidon was enraged with him for blinding his son Polyphemus, and thus he would make his return difficult. Finally, he warned that Odysseus and his companions would return if, upon reaching the land of Thranachia, they did not touch the cattle and the sheep of the sun god Helios. In the case that they killed even one of the animals, his companions would all perish, and Odysseus would spend many years wandering and suffering. Regardless of which path he chooses, though, Tiresias prophesied that Odysseus would eventually make it back to Ithaca, where he would live out the rest of his life and die at an old age. Tiresias then left, and Odysseus let the rest of the dead drink the blood of the sacrifice, so that he could talk to them too. He first spoke to his mother, Andaclea, who had died during his absence. She told him everything about the situation with the suitors in his palace, the fact that Penelope was still faithful to him, that his son Telemachus managed their property, and that his father lived isolated, far from everyone, in the countryside. Next, he spoke with many of the women who belonged to the previous generation, such as Alcmene, the mother of Heracles, Jocasta, the mother and wife of Oedipus, Phaedra, the wife of Theseus, Ariadne, Phaedra's sister who Theseus ditched on Naxos, and many others. Afterwards, the soul of Agamemnon described to him the dreadful scene of his murder. When he saw Achilles, Odysseus exclaimed to him that he must enjoy being like a king among the dead, to which Achilles gave his poignant reply that we mentioned earlier, that it is better to be the slave of a poor man in the world of light than to be ruler in the world below. 
Then Odysseus begins to see the shades of dead figures who do not talk to him directly, such as Ajax, who is still mad at him for the incident involving the armor of Achilles and his subsequent suicide. In the distance, Minos is making judgments amongst the deceased, and Tantalus and Sisyphus are being tortured in Tartarus. Odysseus then ends his visit by talking to Heracles. Afterwards, his men start to get fearful as more and more shades begin to flock around them. So they then rushed back to their ships and sailed along the flow of Oceanus, before arriving back at the island of Circe to carry on his journey. As we mentioned earlier, Odysseus only makes it to the fields of Asphodel, and Homer doesn't describe much of anything else found in the realm of Hades. Later poets would, though, at which point the relationship of the fields of Asphodel to other places in the Greek afterlife becomes uncertain. In Homer, at least, it seems to be the place where all souls were sent after death, except for those who committed a significant crime that would land them in Tartarus. More on that shortly. Although the Homeric image of Hades probably continued to exert a powerful hold over the imagination throughout antiquity, as time passed, the Greeks became increasingly uncomfortable with the idea of equal misery for all. Accordingly, the later Greek poets of the 6th century BC onwards, particularly the composers of the Homeric hymns and Pindar, introduced a paradise-like realm called Elysium, or the Elysian Fields, where the virtuous were sent upon death. And so the very ancient pre-Homeric association of the asphodel flower with the positive form of afterlife, combined with the large role of the Elysian fields, as it became the destination of more than just a few lucky heroes, altered the character of the meadows. From Pindar forward, it became a place where just ordinary souls went, those who didn't achieve any greatness or recognition that would warrant their admittance to the Elysian fields nor committed any heinous acts that would have landed them in Tartarus. Such an evolutionary change is not uncommon, though. Like most cultures throughout human history, both ancient and modern, the Greeks held complex and sometimes contradictory views about the afterlife. Depictions henceforth describe the fields of Asphodel as a land of utter neutrality. That is, just like the inhabitants were in life, neither good nor evil, so they are treated equally neutral in the afterlife. The somewhat pessimistic outlook on the afterlife, for those who had made little impact for their polis, was perhaps passed down to encourage militarism in Greek cultures, as opposed to inaction. In fact, they likely pushed that those who did take up arms and became heroes for their polis were to be rewarded with everlasting joy in the fields of Elysium, and at the same time, those who did not would live out a dreary, neutral existence in the fields of Asphodel. Since the underworld was a vast realm, filled with many geographical features that even the Greek and Roman mythographers were not entirely consistent about. The best way to explore this netherworld is by looking at the account of Virgil, the Roman poet and author of the Aeneid, who gives a very detailed description of the underworld, its major features, and its inhabitants, as he tells the story of Aeneas' journey there in Book 6. Because unlike Odysseus, Aeneas sought to enter the heart of the underworld, rather than bring the spirits of the dead to him through sacrifice. It should be noted that Virgil's version of the underworld is much more optimistic than that of Homer 700 years before, and we will be sure to point out discrepancies. The much more hopeful attitude of Virgil may be explained by the growth and popularity of the mystery religions, including the worship of Sibylle, Dionysus, Demeter, Pluton, and Persephone, and mystical philosophies such as Orphism and Pythagoreanism all of which taught that death is not final, that human beings reincarnate, and that all mortals are judged after death, and are either punished or rewarded for how they conducted themselves when alive. Regrettably, we have no means of knowing how widespread such beliefs were, though they were likely to have been confined to a small minority. Anyways, Aeneas, a son of Aphrodite, or the Roman Venus, was a Trojan hero who had escaped the city of Troy as it fell to the Greeks, and who had made his way to Italy by the commands and fates of the gods, with the goal to establish a new race, the Latins, and his descendants, Romulus and Remus, would found the city of Rome. When Aeneas landed at Cumae in central Italy, he met the Sibyl, a prophetess of Apollo, similar to the Pythia at Delphi. She served a shrine there, and attended an entrance of the underworld. 
Aeneas had been told by the gods to use her as his guide into the underworld so that he could see again his dead father, Anchises, who had information to give to Aeneas about the future of the Roman race and could install courage in him to face the many trials and hardships that lay before him. And so the very much alive Aeneas begins his journey into the underworld, accompanied by the Sibyl. But how did the recently deceased make it to the underworld? Well, at the moment of death, a person's psyche, or soul, is separated from the body, leaving the corpse behind. The psyche takes on the shape of the former person, as it is frozen in experience and appearance and did not age or change in any sense. Therefore, those who died in battle were eternally blood-spattered in the underworld, and those who had died peacefully were able to remain that way. We've already mentioned how Homer describes the souls of the dead, but what later Greeks had in mind by the notion of the soul is unclear, though. It was certainly a more distinctive and conscious entity than a disembodied Homeric shade, though it would be anachronistic to equate it with a Christian notion of the soul. Regardless, the soul was transported to the entrance of the underworld by Hermes. While he did not primarily reside in the underworld and is not usually associated with the underworld, he is the messenger of the gods, and one of his roles as such was to lead the souls of the dead to the kingdom of Hades. In this sense, he was known as Hermes Psychopompus, and with his golden wand, he had the capacity to lead the dead to their new home. Thanatos was a son of Nyx, or night, and Erebus, or darkness, and was the twin god of Hypnos, or sleep. He guards the doors of Hades. He is a minor figure in myth, though, who was often referred to, but rarely made an appearance. That's because he was the personification of death itself, and when he appeared, he brought death and would take the soul to the world below. His duties here as the guide of the dead were sometimes superseded by Hermes' psychopompus, and so Thanatos may have originated as a mere aspect of Hermes, before later becoming distinct from him. Thanatos was originally regarded as merciless, and was hated by mortals. He was rarely shown in art without his brother Hypnos. The two of them were often shown with a wreath of poppies, which came to be associated with them because of their hypnogogic traits and the eventual death brought by them. Thanatos also carries an inverted torch, holding it upside down in his hands, which represents a life extinguished. He's usually described as winged and with a sword sheathed at his belt. Later, when a transition from life to death in the Elysian fields became a more happier thought, Thanatos became more associated with a gentle passing than a woeful demise, and many Roman sarcophagi depict him as a winged boy, very much akin to Cupid. In fact, we see the name of Thanatos in the term euthanasia, which is the act of ending the life of an individual who is suffering, and which literally means a good death. Another interesting figure is Eurynomus who is one of the daemons of the underworld, from where we get the word demon. He doesn't appear in Homer at all, and he seems to have been a later invention, possibly by the 5th century BC painter Polygnotus, whose painting of him is described by Pausanias. It shows him representing the one who eats off all of the flesh of the corpses, leaving only their bones behind, after they were buried. Of course, we know how decomposition works, but the ancients did not, so this creature would have been their way of explaining the transformation in the body after it's buried. A terrifying thought indeed. So shifting back to Aeneas, who instead of being dead and being guided by Thanatos or Hermes to the underworld, is alive and being led by the Sibyl. He carries two items with him, his sword and a golden branch, which he retrieved by the order of the Sibyl, in a nearby grove of a cate. Only those who were fated to enter the underworld could find and pluck the branch in the forest. And so his retrieval of it would guarantee that he could gain admittance into the realm of the dead. He intends to give it to Proserpina, the Roman name for Persephone. And so with the sword and golden branch in hand, Aeneas and the Sibyl find an entrance to the underworld near Avernus, a rancid, foul lake whose stench was so bad that birds flying overhead would fall dead into the water after taking a whiff of it. Passing alongside the lake, and presumably holding their noses, Aeneas and the Sibyl entered into the jaws of Orcus, the threshold of the underworld. Orcus, if you remember, was the Roman equivalent of Hades. Here, at the entrance, along with Thanatos and Hypnos, are the various personified evils and discomforts of life, such as Oisus, the goddess of misery, anxiety, grief and depression, Eris, the goddess of strife and discord, Ceres, the bringer of violent death and terminal sickness, and Garrus, 
the god of old age, among many other personified deities. Essentially, they represent anything that could lead to the death of someone, and thus they are at the threshold between life and death. They also see all kinds of monsters, including the centaurs, the harpies, the gorgons, the Larnian hydra, and the Himera. Yet they pose no real threat, since everything in the underworld is a mere phantom or shadow, lacking bodily substance. Aeneas and the Sibyl also see an elm tree from which false and scary dreams hang, just like bats in a tree. From the jaws of Orcus, the road winds downwards to a thick, muddy swampland called the Stygian Marsh, where the five rivers of Hades converge. They are visible both in the living world and the underworld. The five are Styx, Lethe, Acheron, Cocytus, and Pyriphlegathon. The Styx is perhaps the most famous. It's known as the River of Hatred, and it encircles the underworld seven times, and is the river over which the immortal gods swore all of their oaths to either do something or tell the truth. If they break the oath or lie, they are put into a coma, the length of which is not stated. Also, Styx was said to have miraculous powers, as it could make someone invulnerable. It was here that Achilles was dipped into the waters of the river by his mother Thetis during his childhood acquiring invulnerability, except for his heel, where his mother had held on to him. Hence the expression Achilles' heel, a metaphor for a vulnerable spot. The Acheron is the river of pain. It's the one that Charon, the fairy man of the underworld, rose the dead over, although in some accounts, it's the river Styx, where they have to traverse both. The Lethe is the river of forgetfulness and oblivion. Here the dead would drink from its waters in order to forget their former lives. The Periphlegathon is the river of fire. According to Plato, this river leads to the depths of Tartarus. Finally, the Cocytus is the river of lamentation. At the river Styx, thousands of men and women throng as they try to secure a ride on the small boat that crosses the lake, piloted by the ferryman Charon. To the Etruscans, Charon was considered a fearsome being who wielded a hammer and was hook-nosed, bearded, and had animalistic ears with teeth. But to the ancient Greeks, he was considered to be merely just an ugly and appallingly filthy man, with protruding eyes like jets of fire, matted hair, a bush of unkept beard upon his chin, and a dirty cloak hanging from his shoulders. Nevertheless, he was still considered to be a terrifying deity, since his duty was to bring the souls from the realm of the living into the depths of the underworld. In order to catch a ride, though, one must pay an obol, which was placed either over the eye or under the tongue of the deceased by pious relatives at their funeral. The ferryman, though, does not let everyone board his boat. Anyone who has not had a proper burial in the world above, whether it be because they were paupers and thus didn't have an obol, friendless, or were treated cruelly, are turned away, and thus they have to wait until a hundred years have passed before they can finally rest in the underworld. These restless souls would often return to the world of the living to haunt those who had not given them the proper burial. And certainly, those who are not dead cannot board the boat, since the underworld is not for them. Charon had already regretted letting a few people into his boat, because when they arrived, they always carried out some sort of mischief. For example, Heracles entered and proceeded to drag off Cerberus, the guard dog of the underworld, and Theseus and Parathus came to attempt an abduction of Persephone. Aeneas and the Sibyl gain entrance to his boat, though, by showing him the golden branch, a sign that the gods have foreordained this journey. The boat ferries the two travelers to the other side, to what is called the far margin, and there they disembark. From there, they take the path into the heart of the underworld, past the cavern of Cerberus, the hellhound, who keeps the living from entering the infernal regions, and also keeps the dead from escaping their confinement. He was born from Echidna and Typhon, and is typically depicted as having three heads and a bellowing bark. Some descriptions state that he has a snake-headed tail, while others say that snakes bristle along his back and mane. Regardless, he is a terrifying creature. It should be noted here that traditionally, the ancients believed that ghosts were afraid of loud noises. So while a dog could do no actual physical harm to insubstantial shades, the very sound of his bark keeps them back and prevents the dead from escaping. Cerberus has been bested a few times, though. Heracles once dragged off Cerberus as the final part of his labors, and Orpheus once soothed it to sleep with music. 
The Sybil also came prepared, and she threw him a chunk of bread, soaked in honey, and had a drug hidden inside of it that put him to sleep immediately. And so the hero enters alive into the realm of the dead, with the hope of returning to the world above again, thereby symbolically conquering death. Just beyond Cerberus lies an area for those who died too young or unjustly. This includes infants and those who have committed suicide, and who have since learned that even a sorrowful life is better than death. Here also are people who were judged unjustly, and wrongly put to death. Nearby stretches the fields of mourning, for those who pined away their life in love, or committed suicide because of love. One of Aeneas's former girlfriends is here, the Carthaginian queen Dido, whom Aeneas had to abandon because the fates had other plans for him. She was unwilling to speak to Aeneas, though. Such was her hatred and animosity that she still held for him. Next, the two came to the field of the warriors, the place where warriors go who have died in battle and still carry their arms. In a sense, they too have died before their time, and so they belong here near the others who have died too soon. Many of the Greeks and Trojans, fresh from the war, were there, including Diphobus, the good friend of Aeneas. Helen had killed him during the fall of Troy, as she was trying to convince her husband Menelaus that she didn't run away with Paris off to Troy, but instead was taken captive, and that she really didn't want to be there, and she wanted to go back with him. After ten years, there was some doubt amongst the Greek warriors, who knew that Helen had a chance to escape from Troy several times. Helen, in fact, had willingly married Diphobus after Paris was killed during a battle. Anyways, when Aeneas sees him in the underworld, Diphobus is mutilated everywhere. Even in the afterlife, he bears the marks of his horrible death. After the field of the warriors, our intrepid travelers come to a crossroads, where the palace of Hades and Persephone stands, in a place called Erebus, which could be taken as a euphonym for Hades, whose own name was dreadful to say. Aeneas places the golden branch at the doorstep for Persephone, without trying to enter. In the forecourt of the palace of Hades and Persephone sit the three judges of the underworld, all sons of Zeus. They were Achis, the father of Peleus and Telamon, and the grandfather of Achilles and Ajax, and the Cretan brothers Radamanthus and Minos. Achis was the guardian of the keys of the underworld, and judged the souls of those men from Europe, and Radamanthus was the lord of Elysium, and judged the souls of those from Asia. Minos was the judge with the deciding vote on those who were killed unjustly and in ambiguous cases. He gives them a second trial and reviews the facts of their case again, because injustices in the world of the living cannot stand forever in the world of the dead. There, at the trivium sacred to Hecate, where three roads meet, the souls of the deceased are judged by one of these men. After their sentences are passed, they are sent either to the fields of Asphodel, if they are determined to be neither virtuous nor impious, to Tartarus, if they are proven to have acted impiously, or to Elysium, if they are a demigod, or have shown themselves to be virtuous. The left of the three roads leads down to Tartarus, the home of the perpetually damned. Homer asserts that Tartarus is as far beneath Hades as Mount Olympus is above the earth. Hesiod corroborates this by saying that a bronze anvil falling from Mount Olympus would fall nine days before it reached the earth. The anvil would then take nine more days to fall from the earth to Tartarus. As we discussed in episode 2, Tartarus, as the son of Gaia, was both a primordial deity and a physical place within the underworld. A deep abyss, surrounded by a fiery river and protected by a gate made of adamantine steel, from which we get the word adamant. It was a mythological metal that even the gods could not break, and the hundred-handed ones, or the Hecatonchires, guard the gate. Tartarus was used originally to confine those who posed a danger to the gods of Mount Olympus, such as Kronos and the Titans, who fought against the Olympians and the Titanomachy, as well as the monster Typhon. In later myths, it became a dungeon of torment and suffering for the worst criminals from the world above, people who are judged to be wicked because they have insulted the gods by committing acts that may have betrayed their country, done harm to their own family members, broken faith and cheated others, and so forth. This did not necessarily include serial killers and rapists, or those who modern lenses view as the most deserving of such torment, and those type of people would have almost certainly ended up amongst the general mass of mankind. But ancient and modern mores were quite different, and so a fate of eternal damnation was consigned to those who outraged and insulted the dignity of the gods. 
Some of those who particularly earned Zeus's ire include Sisyphus, Tantalus, Ixion, and the Danaids, all of whom are given punishments that fit their crimes, which we have discussed in episodes 46 and 50. The Furies leap about with whips in hand, striking the tortured criminals and trying to force each one of them to acknowledge their sins. Despite the torture, they are reluctant to admit that they have committed any wrong, because they are habitual sinners. Tartars is a horrible, pitch-black place with terrifying sounds issuing forth. Shouts of pain, cracking whips, dragging chains, and grinding bones. The Aranyes, also known as the Furii in Latin, and thus are called the Furies in English, did not reside in Tartarus, though. They lived in Erebus, and their primary role was vengeance for crimes against the natural order of the world. In doing so, they would hear complaints brought by dead mortals concerning crimes done by children against their parents, such as matricide, patricide, and unfilial conduct, as well as of hosts to guests and against suppliants. In particular, they were invoked by Clytemnestra after she had been murdered by her son Orestes. The Furies, who sprang forth from the blood of the severed genitals of Oranos after her son Kronos had castrated him, were depicted as being hideous, with snakes for hair, dogs' heads, coal-black bodies, bats' wings, and bloodshot eyes. Virgil wrote that there were three, Electo, meaning endless, Megaira, or jealous rage, and Tisiphone, or vengeful destruction. They would pursue their victims with torches, snakes, or whips, and would seek out vengeance by inflicting madness upon the living murderer. Or if a nation was harboring such a criminal, the Furies would cause starvation and disease to that nation. Needless to say, their victims oftentimes died in excruciating agony and torment. And so the Furies were dreaded by the living, since they embodied the vengeance of the person who was wronged against the wrongdoer. Often the Greeks made libations to the Furies to appease them so as to not invoke their wrath. And overall, the Furies received many more libations and sacrifices than the rest of the gods of the underworld. The right of the three roads leads to Elysium, or the Elysian Fields. As we mentioned, it is a conception of the afterlife that developed over time and was maintained by some religious and philosophical sects and cults. In any system, there often exists a privileged minority who don't endure the same miserable lot as the rest of humanity, and the Greco-Roman conception of afterlife was no different in this respect. Admission into Elysium was initially reserved for heroic mortals, such as Cadmus, Peleus, Achilles, and so forth. These men were not accorded this privileged status because they had distinguished themselves during their lifetime, but because they were either related to or married into the family of the gods. Later, admission expanded to include those whose souls were judged to be especially righteous or virtuous. According to Hesiod and Pindar, Kronos somehow later earned Zeus's forgiveness and was released from Tartarus to become ruler of Elysium, but Virgil says it was Radamanthus who was the lord of Elysium. Regardless, Hesiod also says that within Elysium was a special realm known as the Isle of the Blessed. When a soul reached Elysium, they had a choice to either stay or to be reborn. If a soul was reborn three times and achieved Elysium all three times, meaning that they lived three consecutive, especially righteous or virtuous lives, then they were sent to the Isle of the Blessed to live in eternal paradise, indulging in whatever enjoyment they chose with no labors whatsoever. Another tradition identifies the Garden of the Hesperides with the Isle of the Blessed. What kind of existence awaited those who dwelt in the Elysian fields is unclear in Greek literature, apart from the extremely favorable climatic conditions, that is. But in the Aeneid, the Elysian fields are full of greenery and music and even has light. There, everybody can do their favorite things all day long, such as engaging in sports or reading books, and it's here where Aeneas finally meets his father, Anchises. Aeneas tries to touch him, but his father is just like the other shades, and thus he is just a phantom. Anchises then shows Aeneas the spirits of the men and women who are waiting to be reborn. He explains that for a thousand years they drink from the river Lethe, which means forgetfulness, until they have forgotten their former selves and are ready to take on a new life in the world above. Aeneas sees the great leaders of future Rome, none though who obviously lived after Virgil's time, men such as Romulus, the founder of Rome, Augustus Caesar, who ruled Rome while the poem was being written, 
and even Marcellus, Augustus's first son-in-law, who died while the poem was less than half finished. A Roman reading this in Virgil's time would marvel at how long before their time the grandeur of Rome has been faded, and how many difficult struggles the Roman race had to go through to get to where it was. They would feel that Rome itself exists as the fulfillment of destiny. Aeneas, therefore, catches a glimpse of the story that will be Rome, and feels emboldened to continue his task. He bids farewell to his father, and we are told of the strange exit by the hero and the sibyl into the world above, where a portal appears and he exits through the gate of false dreams. The afterlife is extremely resistant to clear and unambiguous conclusions. Ideas about it are inevitably a hodgepodge of contradictory and ill-thought-out hopes, fears, and fantasies. Our own beliefs and practices are no less conflictive than those of the ancient Greeks and Romans. At the beginning of the Republic, Plato puts the following pronouncement into the mouth of the elderly Cephalus, which may serve as a fitting epitaph to the instability of beliefs in ancient Greece concerning the afterlife, within even the same individual at different periods of one's life. Quote, when a man gets to the end of his life, he becomes subject to fear and anxiety about what lies ahead. The stories told about people in Hades, that if you commit crimes on earth, you must pay for them down below, although they were ridiculed for a while, now begin to disturb a man's soul with the possibility that they might be true. End quote. And so that's the Greek and Roman view of the underworld, at least according to the literature. We also talk some about necromancy. If you're wanting to hear more, do not fret. We will discuss magic and witchcraft a lot more in a future episode. But for now, we mentioned Persephone and the role that Hades, as Pluton, played as the god of wealth. On the next episode, we are going to discuss how Persephone came to be Hades' wife, her mother Demeter, and the various cults in which these two are worshipped. So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 61, The Two Goddesses. Thank you.